Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q&Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at c-u-e-a-n-d-r-e-v-i-e-w.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald Scotland, Wednesday, 4th of August, 2021. COVID. Nicola Sturgeon warns of travel bans and local lockdowns if necessary by Jack Aitchison, live editor, The Herald. Nicola Sturgeon has warned that localised restrictions and travel bans could return to Scotland if necessary to control the outbreak when beyond level zero. Speaking at a recalled session of the Scottish Parliament yesterday, the First Minister confirmed most of Scotland's remaining coronavirus restrictions are to be scrapped from Monday, in what she hailed as perhaps the most significant date so far in the pandemic. Ms Sturgeon said that from August the 9th, Scotland would move beyond level zero, with the removal of most restrictions being made possible thanks to the steady decline in cases and the success of vaccination. Most of the remaining legally imposed restrictions, including those on physical distancing and limits to the size of social gatherings, will be lifted. However, events with more than 2,000 people indoors or more than 5,000 outside, will need to apply for permission before they can take place. Meanwhile, from Monday, no venues will be legally required to be closed, allowing nightclubs to finally open their doors again for the first time since March 2020. But Ms Sturgeon told Scots the legal requirement to wear face masks will remain for some time to come. As she also said, the Scottish Government would continue to advise home working where possible. She warned that care and caution will be required as we make the move towards further normality, including the potential for local lockdowns and travel bans. She told MSPs, we will continue to work closely with local incident management teams on appropriate outbreak control measures, including the use of localised restrictions in future if necessary. We will also continue to use travel restrictions as and when necessary to restrict the spread of outbreaks and protect against the risk of importation of new variants. While she said the latest changes would restore a substantial degree of normality, the First Minister was also clear that Monday does not signal the end of the pandemic or a return to life exactly as we knew it before COVID struck. She stated, declaring freedom from or victory over this virus is premature. While she said Monday was perhaps the most significant date so far in Scotland, Miss Sturgeon was adamant, I am not going to shout freedom from this virus because I think it misleads people. The virus is circulating, the risk of new variants is there. She also made clear coronavirus restrictions could have to be reimposed, warning the winter period may well pose challenges for us. Her comments came as Scotland recorded a further 1,016 new cases of the virus and another nine deaths in the past 24 hours. 
Latest figures also showed 4,006 people in hospital on Tuesday with recently confirmed COVID with 61 patients in intensive care. This article was written by Jack Aitchison. The Herald Scotland, Wednesday 4th of August 2021. Loch Lomond Drownings. Mohammed Asim Riaz laid to rest by family and colleagues by Josh Carmichael. Devastated taxi drivers have paid tribute to their fallen colleague after his tragic drowning during a weekend of tragedies in Scotland's waters. Workers turned out at Lynn Cemetery Extension in the south of Glasgow to honour Mohammed Asim Riaz with a driver salute at his funeral, a guard of honour for their colleague and friend. Riaz lost his life after getting into difficulty at Pulpit Rock Louis on July the 24th. His friend, Edina Olohova, 29, and her nine-year-old son, Rana Harris Ali, were also pronounced dead on the scene. A small group of app drivers and Couriers Union, EDCU, committee members, who knew the 41-year-old personally, spoke fondly of his memory, with the grey day matching the solemn mood of the occasion. Organiser of the driver's salute and member of the ADCU, Eddie Grease, knew Riaz and had only been working with him the week before the tragic incident. He said he was a nice, hard-working guy. He was respectful to everyone and, to be honest, he was quite quiet. He didn't give anyone any hassle. Those who arrived at the cemetery around 3pm this afternoon had also attended their local mosque beforehand to say their prayers. Grace and several other drivers, including some who didn't know him personally but wanted to pay their respects, waited just outside the cemetery for the funeral car to enter. Once those who had made the journey from the mosque to the cemetery had all arrived, Grace and the rest of Riaz's colleagues from the ADC union followed closely behind. Grace added, We're standing in solidarity with a fallen colleague. When we heard the news, a lot of us knew him personally, so it shook us. Today we stand together. I was only just working with him the week before he died. We are here to support each other and to hold each other up. In times like this, when the worst happens, we will try to support each other and his family. And we would like to offer his family our thoughts and prayers. A fundraiser has also been set up for Riaz's family, which has surpassed its initial target of £2,500. His tragic death was part of a weekend of tragedies, where seven people died in waters across the country. Aman Sharma, 34, became the latest fatality after passing away after getting into difficulty at Loch Lubneg in Stirling last Sunday. Elsewhere, 16-year-old Connor Mark Ward from Glasgow died on Friday afternoon at Loch Lomond. Dean Irvin, 11, drowned in Stonehouse, Lanarkshire, on Saturday and 13-year-old Jamie Gilchrist lost his life in a Lanark River. Following the devastating weekend, Loch Lomond bosses held a series of urgent talks to reflect on the multiple tragedies and aimed to discuss how to improve water safety advice both for the lochs in the Crossocks and for other bodies of waters in Scotland. Chief Executive of the Park Authority, Gordon Watson, said the meetings were exploring both short and long-term actions they could take to aid water safety measures, but specific details have yet to be announced. As well as the urgent meetings, which included local authorities and safety partners, Director of the Environment, and Visitor Services at the Park, 
Simon Jones also issued a familiar plea to those who are still thinking of visiting and exploring the water. He said, Water bodies in the National Park can have hidden dangers, particularly the risk of cold water shock, even in warm weather, and the potential for sudden changes in the depth of the water. By taking some time to read the water safety advice on our website and share this information with your families and friends, you can help get these important messages to as many people as possible. This article was written by Josh Carmichael. Recorded from the Herald on the 4th of August 2021. From the sports section, Celtic and Rangers given European boost as Glasgow City Council gives thumbs up for capacity crowds. By Aidan Smith. Celtic and Rangers have been given a European boost with the news that they could be granted permission by Glasgow City Council to host capacity crowds. Sporting bodies and clubs will have to continue applying for permission to host major crowds despite Scotland moving beyond level zero of coronavirus restrictions. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon announced the Scottish Government was temporarily keeping some mitigations in place when most legal COVID-19 regulations are removed from next Monday. Sturgeon said, while we expect to see the careful return of large-scale events, we will, for a limited period, keep in place the processes through which organisers of outdoor events for more than 5,000 people and indoor events of more than 2,000 will have to apply for permission. This is allowing us and local authorities simply to be reassured of the arrangements to be in place to reduce the risk of large-scale gatherings. However, a Glasgow City Council source has told the Daily Record that Celtic and Rangers will likely be given the go-ahead for capacity crowds for their upcoming European fixtures. The source said, We haven't had any formal requests yet, but it is vanishingly unlikely that we would say no to Full House. That article was by Aidan Smith. From the Health Scotland, dated 4th of August 2021, from the Voices section. £50,000 Ireland bond is a worthless gimmick. Here's a better idea to repopulate rural Scotland. An article by Brian Wolfson. A lot of lives and outlooks changed in the past 18 months. And if we are indeed emerging from dark days, it would be as well to look for opportunities rather than wander back into a false assumption of business as usual. There is no more clear-cut example of why this makes sense than rural housing because the fallout is already happening before the eyes of anyone who looks in an estate agent's window. The more scenic the area, the higher the roof that prices have gone through. Remote working is no longer a minority proposition, while a second home has become more attractive to anyone who can afford it. The impact on local housing markets is to price out the very people communities depend upon for their sustainability. Months ago, I suggested this evolving scenario created an opportunity for Scottish Government intervention. Things can be done in an emergency that might come up against resistance in normal times. So here was a chance to attack one of the great enigmas of Scottish society, the shortage of rural land for house building. One thing Scotland is not short of is land, yet vast tracts are run as private fiefdoms outside the reach of public policy. Until that is correct, Scotland's rural communities are fighting with at least one hand tied behind their backs. With demand for rural housing soaring, the need for legislation which will force landowners, 
regardless of status or nationality, to yield land for housing sites or small holdings is overwhelming. It is a matter public policy should decide and thereby enrich the lives of thousands who, now more than ever, want to live, work or raise families in rural environments. Nothing, of course, has happened. The kind of interventions in the land market that were deemed possible a century ago are far too radical today. But doing nothing is not a neutral act when the effect is to make it ever more difficult for the lifeblood of communities to be kept flowing through availability of houses to live in. I tend, by background and place of residence, to discuss these issues in terms of island or crofting communities. That allows them to be marginalised, so let's be clear. Most of rural Scotland is not made up of islands or land under crofting tenure. Far more consists of untouchable private estates, controlled by a rogues gallery of owners, the last of whose interests is in opening them up to people who want a change of lifestyle or just to remain in their own communities. Even within the highlands and islands, the distinction between crofting and non-crofting land was created 140 years ago and remains untouched to the present day. It was based on a double jeopardy. If an area had been so effectively cleared that there were few people left, it was not included in the crofting acts and continued as an empty private fiefdom. It is extraordinary that Scotland still takes that distinction for granted, without question or challenge. The Scottish Government has announced a gimmicky scheme to offer people £50,000 bonds to live on islands. It is spread over £5 million, 93 inhabited islands and five years. So each year, perhaps on St Andrew's Day, are we to have a lottery to decide which 20 lucky applicants will win a £50,000 bond? As a policy to address serious issues, it is an irrelevant joke. In contrast, most houses which have allowed people to remain in crofting areas were built through the Crofter Housing Grant and Loan Scheme, which was not too radical for the politics of 1956 when it was created. Applicants were paid realistic sums and contributed their own labour to build the house. Job done, and it was reputed to be the cheapest form of housing to the public purse. Like every good idea that worked, it has been allowed to shrivel and decline. The loans abolished and the grant element cut to the point that uptake last year was only 53 across the whole Highlands Islands. Five years ago, the Western Isles Council put forward its own variation to address the hemorrhaging of population for rural communities. They asked for flexibility to use part of the housing allocation from Edinburgh to create a revolving fund which would provide capital grants, allow for own labour, recoup through rent equivalent payments and after 15 years leave people as owners of their homes in the places they wanted to live. This was far too radical for the then Housing Minister, Kevin Stewart, who knocked it back. Social housing meant social housing, and if it did not look like a mini housing scheme, it couldn't be social housing. The concept is now being revisited, and we wait to see if anything has changed in the Edinburgh mindset. 
Crucially, that kind of scheme does not need to be confined to a crofting area or island. It has equal application in any part of rural Scotland, where there are people who want to live in a good environment or stay in their own communities and will work hard to make that possible. Should government not be the enablers? Of course, none of the above can apply without access to land. And that is the issue which, over vast swathes of rural Scotland, remains wholly unaddressed. Doubtless, that too, will be somebody else's fault. This article is by Brian Wilson. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday, 4th of August 2021. Arts and Entertainments. Paperbacks by Cariatu Canny Mason, Peter Murphy and Fiona Collins. Review by Alistair Mabbitt. House of Music, Cadiatu Canny Mason. One World, £9.99. Canny Mason is mother to seven children, all of whom are classical musicians and have come to be known as Britain's most musical family. Products of a state school in Nottingham rather than specialist music schools, they're veterans of Britain's Got Talent. Cellist Sheku winning 2016's Young Musician of the Year competitions, bundling kids onto 6am trains and driving them across the county to study with the best teachers. And that's without taking into account the setbacks like mountain debt, Sheku being diagnosed with diabetes or Brema practising so hard he sustained muscle damage. An engaging and informative account of hard work and dedication given context by her experiences of growing up with a Sierra Leonean father and a Welsh mother in 1970s-1980s Britain. A statue for Jacob, Peter Murphy, Old Castle, £9.99. For all his attempts to reclaim it, the government declined to repay the loan and Dehaven died in poverty. Two centuries later, his descendants tried to recover the sum by then amounting to billions from the US government. Lawyer Peter Murphy was involved in the case and has used it as inspiration for this novel in which the fictional Samantha Van Eyck hires Virginia lawyer Kaya Harmon for a debt recovery suit. Kaya is getting herself together after some difficulties and has had to re-establish her practice while government lawyers pull out all the stops to frustrate her. Murphy's knowledge of the original case brings procedural authenticity to this capable courtroom thriller which is a sympathetic protagonist in Kaya, the bonus of a close connection to fascinating historical events. Summer in the City, Fiona Collins, Penguin, £8.99. Nearly 50, Prue lives above a tube station with her blind father, Vince. She's always been self-conscious about her facial birthmark and has in recent years retreated from the world and sunk into a rut. Jean and Vince have an undemonstrative relationship based on routine and keeping to themselves. Neither goes out, Believed to have witnessed a suicide in the tracks, Prue is offered counselling and takes it, just to have someone to talk to. But it sets her on the path to re-emerging into the world and repairing her relationship with Vince, a former architect who learns to see London anew. It's a feel-good book, but what really stands out is the way Collins captures Prue's voice. She's known a lot of pain, and it all comes out in a tone which is precise, impatient and cold but which evokes immediate sympathy for her and perhaps reveals more vulnerability than Prue realises. By Alistair Mabbitt. The Herald, Wednesday the 4th of August 2021. News. Business Briefing. This article is by Brian Donnelly. Good morning and welcome to the AM Business Briefing on Wednesday, August the 4th. 
Businesses are today forging ahead with Beyond Level Zero plans after First Minister Nicola Sturgeon announced the move to lift restrictions from next week. Firms across a range of sectors, including hospitality and events, are preparing for a bounce back, with the organiser of Transmit already saying he has approval to hold the festival later this year, with 50,000 people on Glasgow Green in September, without social distancing or face masks. Also this morning, 50 jobs are to be created at family-run Fife Creamery as it hails a £1.65 million funding package from the Royal Bank of Scotland to enable an extensive expansion into frozen food services. Graham Roy, Professor of Economics at the University of Glasgow's Adam Smith Business School, hits home the need for a concerted global economic push to help the world out of COVID, pointing out in many low-income countries less than 1% has received one vaccine dose. He raises questions over the scaling back of the UK government for an age budget. Also today, drinks giant Diageo has revealed plans to build a solar energy farm at a Scottish bottling plant. Jobs to be created at Scottish food business. Fife Creamery, a supplier of chilled foods, has hailed a £1.65 million bank funding package to enable an extensive expansion into frozen food services. The family-run business, headquartered in Kirkcaldy, said it has led the way in delivering chilled foods for more than 60 years to customers all across Scotland, from independent sandwich bars and local convenience stores to government institutions and large store chains. Now with significant Royal Bank of Scotland funding, Fife Creamery has constructed a state-of-the-art frozen cold store with the capacity to fit up to 1,000 pallets, which has allowed the firm to expand into the frozen foods market and attract a new customer base. With a team of more than 100 staff, Fife Creamery has already noted an increase in its turnover and hopes to grow its headcount by up to 50 over the next three years in response to growing customer demand. The funding has also enabled the business to upgrade its refrigeration equipment and provided financial confidence throughout lockdown periods as business dipped due to ongoing closures of hospitality premises. Graham Simpson, Managing Director at Fife Creamery, said Since 1957, Fife Creamery has led the way in delivering high-quality goods to some of Scotland's most loved retailers and food service providers. We are proud to support businesses and institutions the length and breadth of Scotland and the ability to now expand our services and portfolio to new and existing customers has been warmly welcomed, with our turnover projected to increase by 30% over the next six months. Although the last 18 months have been challenging for obvious reasons, the funding and support from Royal Bank of Scotland provided us with financial security and we're grateful to the team for always being on hand to give trusted advice. Ken Anderson, Relationship Director at Royal Bank of Scotland, said, Graham and his team are incredibly passionate about the firm, which is why they have built such a buoyant network of customers across Scotland. We're really pleased to see Fife Creamery embark on a new chapter as it continues to provide a first-class service and look forward to continuing our relationship with the team.
Drink Giant reveals plans to build solar energy farm at Fife Bottling Plant. Scottish whisky giant Diageo has unveiled plans to build a solar energy farm at its massive packaging plant in Leven, Fife. The Johnny Walker, Bells and Gordon's maker has submitted proposals to Fife Council for permission to install 12,000 solar panels at the site, which produces 40 million cases of spirits per year. The panels, which the distiller is aiming to install on vacant land at the 150-acre site, would be capable of producing 4 megawatts of electricity. Diageo said the plans form part of its ambition to achieve net zero status in terms of carbon emissions from direct operations by 2030. It is working on the project alongside energy company E.ON and Mtech Energy, a local Scottish business. Diageo has solar panels at other sites, but this would be its first solar project of this scale. It noted that while its proposed solar farm would cover an extensive area, it would fall entirely within the existing footprint of the Leven packaging plant. The plans have been drafted to minimise the visual and environmental impact on the surrounding area. Gavin Brogan, Operations Director at Leven, said, We have been on the journey to environmental sustainability at Leven for many years, and we have made great progress, but this solar array would take us to another level, allowing us to generate our own renewable energy on site and contributing to Diageo's global ambition to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2030. We have planned this carefully and we are happy to engage our neighbours and local stakeholders during the planning application process. As part of a 10-year sustainability action plan, Diageo said three of its Scottish whisky distillers Oban, Royal Lochnagar and Brora have already achieved net zero status. Graham Roy, nations must work together to foster a global COVID recovery. It is interesting how sentiment on the economy can quickly turn from one extreme to another. Just a few months ago, the talk was of a UK economy in the doldrums with a long road to recovery. Unemployment was forecast to rise to over 10%, and many were predicting that the Bank of England might embark on negative interest rates for the first time in its history. Today, the talk in some quarters is of inflation and parts of the economy at risk of overheating. So what do we know about the path for recovery? The first and most important point is that there remains huge uncertainty about the outlook. Whilst the latest predictions are undoubtedly more positive than earlier in the year, significant uncertainties remain. This is not just because of ongoing concerns about the spread of the virus and new variants, but also huge unknowns about how business and consumers will react as COVID financial support is lifted. However, as social distancing restrictions have eased, there has been a sharp rise in activity across the economy. UK GDP jumped by over 6% between January and May. A further sharp rise is expected over the summer following the latest lifting of restrictions. The number of jobs furloughed has fallen from over 9 million at the peak of the crisis to just under 2 million, including a fall of over half a million in June alone. 
Last week, the IMF upgraded the UK's growth forecast for 2021 to 7%, the joint fastest of any country in the G7. UK inflation has risen to 2.5%, with the Bank of England's former chief economist, Andy Haldane, predicting it could reach 4% this year. The respected National Institute of Economic and Social Research believe that there is a 1 in 10 chance that inflation could exceed 5%. These would be rates not seen in around a decade. Were this to occur, there would be pressure on the bank to tighten monetary policy sooner rather than later. Indeed, two members of its interest rate setting committee have already expressed the view that While interest rate hikes might not be on the immediate horizon, the time for easing off on its quantitative easing programme is fast approaching. Others have warned against tightening policy too soon, pointing out the risk to an economy recovering from a sharp recession. Given the significant levels of uncertainty that exist, these decisions will be close judgment calls for monetary policymakers. Judgments not about the pace of recovery, but how much of the recent rise in prices is temporary and how much of it is more a persistent shift in the underlying dynamics of the economy. For the time being, most of the recent growth in inflation has been driven by rising prices amongst goods and services, such as transport, eating out and fuel, that have bounced back from lockdown. In these areas, current levels of inflation are likely to slip back. Inflation expectations have also yet to shift significantly, but there are signs of concern. Supply chains remain in flux, putting pressure on prices that may be longer lasting. There are also signs of emerging wage pressures too. There were over 860,000 vacancies in the UK in the three-month period to June, nearly 10% more than pre-pandemic, fueling concerns of a wage war for talent. However, despite recent growth, the UK economy remains some 3% below pre-pandemic levels, with other challenges, most notably the ongoing adjustment to post-Brexit trading arrangements, still weighing heavily on growth. Given this, and such high levels of uncertainty, The correct course of action must be for policymakers to wait for more sustained evidence of recovery before easing off too quickly on stimulus measures. Doing so will also provide space for the Chancellor to put in place policies that shift the focus away from emergency lockdown measures to economic recovery. This will have to include support for those businesses hit hardest by lockdown, measures to address youth unemployment, and proposals to tackle rising poverty. A U-turn on plans to remove the temporary £20 boost to universal credit announced during lockdown would be a start. At the same time, any debate on the future direction of UK economic policy cannot ignore the wider global context or our international responsibilities. There is a growing divide between a more positive economic outlook for high-income economies, like the UK, and a weaker outlook for middle- and low-income economies. A key reason are the huge inequalities in vaccination rates. Recent data show that while close to 40% of the population in high-income economies have been vaccinated, it is less than half that in middle-income countries, 
In many low-income countries, less than 1% has received one dose. Vaccine access divides the global recovery. Countries looking forward to greater normalisation of activity in the near future, most high-income economies, versus countries still contending with prospects of resurgent infections and rising death tolls, many middle- and low-income economies. The fear is that for many lower-income countries, economic recovery in Europe and North America will not only widen global inequalities, but expose them to new devastating waves of the virus. Many do not have the fiscal buffers or resilience in their corporate balance sheets to cope with further lockdowns. A tightening of monetary policy in Europe and the US will only exacerbate fears of financial stress. We cannot see our own economic recovery as anything but intertwined with that of the rest of the world. The virus does not recognise international borders and if we are to have a sustainable recovery domestically and internationally, countries must work together. Delivering on commitments for vaccinations across the globe is crucial, but it will also require a wider global economic response with increased financial support for low and middle income countries. In this light, the scaling back of the UK foreign aid budget this year is just as much a bad economic policy as it is a dereliction of our global responsibilities. It will be difficult for countries like the UK to build a consensus on global challenges, such as the transition to net zero, without showing leadership on the economic recovery from COVID. Much of the focus and commentary on the path to recovery for the UK economy is dominated by daily signals on the outlook for inflation or the twists and turns of the latest economic statistic or survey. But it is the longer term and global challenges that will shape the future path of our economy as we emerge from the pandemic and where policy will have the greatest impact. Seen in this light, our priorities must align just as much with the needs of tomorrow and the coming decades as the worries of today. Graham Roy is Professor of Economics at the University of Glasgow's Adam Smith Business School. The Herald, Thursday the 5th of August 2021. News. Glasgow firm behind transformative blood test that can identify brain tumours in early stages. This article is by Gemma Ryder. A new blood test can detect brain tumours in their infancy in a development hailed as transformative for patients and doctors. Currently, diagnosis can take more than eight weeks, requiring several GP visits, with delays common due to non-cancer diagnosis, experts say. It is hoped the ability to identify tumours at an earlier stage can reduce harms from surgery and fast-track patients into brain imaging scans for better survival outcomes. In a new study, blood samples from 177 patients with varying sizes of brain tumours were analysed using patented technology by Glasgow-based health tech firm Discover which used stereoscopic analysis under infrared light and then machine learning software. The findings, published in the journal Cancers, showed the test was effective at identifying patients with tumours as small as 0.2 centimetres.
Some 12,000 people in Britain are diagnosed with brain tumours annually and survival rates are as low as 12% five years after diagnosis, according to Cancer Research UK. Dr Paul Brennan, a consultant neurosurgeon at the University of Edinburgh, said diagnosis is difficult because the most common symptoms are not specific to brain tumours. He said a non-cancer diagnosis is more likely and this contributes to diagnostic delay. The DISCOVER test will support primary care doctors to identify which of these patients are most likely to have a brain tumour and should be referred for rapid brain imaging. This will be transformative for both patients and doctors. Dr Matt Baker, DISCOVER's Chief Technical Officer, hailed the results as a watershed moment in the development of early cancer detection, which could increase treatment options and potentially extend life expectancy. Clinical tests like this are a crucial part of DISCOVER's journey to develop and commercialise a widely accepted multi-cancer early detection platform to help save lives, he said. This article is by Gemma Ryder. Recorded from the Herald on the 5th of August 2021, from the sports section, Celtic announced full capacity plans ahead of Jablonic tie a Scots government green light fan return by Mark Hendry. Celtic will welcome fans back inside Parkhead next week after the Scottish government greenlit plans to house a full capacity crowd. In keeping with safety protocols, the club confirmed they would be able to play their match against Jablonic in games beyond that Europa League qualifying fixture in front of 60,000. It comes as Rangers were also given the go-ahead to do the same for their clash with Malmo. A statement on the Celtic website confirmed, We are delighted to announce that we have received confirmation from the local safety advisory group that following Tuesday's Scottish Government announcement and positive reviews of recent matches and associated protocols, Full capacity crowds will now be permitted at Celtic Park from Monday, August 9th onwards. It has been too long since we have heard the roar of a packed paradise and we cannot wait to welcome you home to Celtic Park. We have been working relentlessly behind the scenes to bring our supporters back and we are thrilled to finally be able to make this announcement. Once again, we would like to thank you for your assistance and cooperation and working within the established matchday protocols, something which has been crucial in delivering this attendance. Celtic Chief Executive Don Mackay added, I would like to thank our fans for all the fantastic support they have given us in reaching these levels. I would especially like to thank our staff for their tireless efforts and hard work in getting us to this stage. Our team have been a leading force in Scottish sport, writing and exercising protocols and procedures to allow us to return to train and play. Now, through their hard work and leadership, we are finally welcoming you, our fans, back where you belong. I must also thank the Scottish Government, Glasgow City Council and the Safety Advisory Group for all their cooperation. That article was by Mark Hendry. Recorded from the Herald on the 5th of August 2021. From the Sports section. Glasgow Warriors to begin pre-season with Newcastle Falcons and Worcester Friendlies. By Stuart Bathgate. Glasgow will be at home to Newcastle Falcons in their first pre-season friendly on Friday 3rd of September. The Warriors have already announced that they will be away to Worcester the following Friday. Both fixtures will kick off at 7pm. I'm pleased we've secured pre-season games against two quality English Premiership sides, Glasgow coach Danny Wilson said. These games will provide us with a standard of competition that will help us to be game ready for the URC 
getting underway later in September. Fans were expected to be able to return to Scotsdale for the Newcastle match, which could provide a Warriors debut for new signings such as Jack Dempsey and Sion Tapiloto. It may also be a second debut for Duncan Weir, who is back with his hometown team after a five-year absence. Ticket details will be announced shortly. That article was by Stuart Bathgate. Herald Scotland recorded on Friday the 6th of August 2021. Arts and Entertainments. Lavinia Greenlaw on Seeing Red in the Green Room. Extract from the Poet's New Book by Herald Scotland. The questions I've been asked most often are the hardest to answer. People ask about inspiration and routine as if they're recipes I should be willing to share. For the first decade of my writing life, they asked me about being a woman poet. Let's now talk about your experience as a woman poet, only if we can also talk about your experience as a male poet. But it's important to address femininity in your work, and to address masculinity in yours, to address them both in my work and yours. I never sounded as confident as this. I managed a few times to say something like the above, but with a great deal of blushing and demurral. People ask questions as a way of telling me who I was and what I wrote about. I did my best to come up with a reply. If someone asks something stupid, I might contort my answer so as not to give their stupidity away. If they were aggressive, I became possessed of extreme good manners, which made me feel later as if I'd slightly poisoned myself, which I had. I dismissed myself making jokes about what I wrote and being offhand about what poetry should be and can do. The man in the extrovert suit bounded over to me in the green room. He talked about how delighted he was to be chairing my event, how much he'd enjoyed the book and how he had so many questions. He was looking neither at me nor at my book. Five minutes later he was introducing me on stage and got as far as my first name before going blank. He read my surname off the front of the book and then turned it over and read the blurb in the back and still I thanked him afterwards. Just before I went on stage a man sauntered up to me in the wings of the theatre and said he was there to interview me. He liked doing it because he got a free pass at the festival and access to the food and drink in the green room. What was my book called and what questions would I like him to ask? On stage he asked me to explain what I just had. He wasn't listening. I was at a festival event chaired by the books editor of a prominent journal. By way of greeting he told me how difficult he found my work. We offered each other quick smiles as if to agree that this was not going to be a problem. When he introduced me on stage, he described me as terribly serious, probably lonely and a bit sad. I read poems about getting drunk and dancing. This time my interviewer was ready with his questions. I don't understand your poems, he said. Why don't you want people to understand them? I mean, not even you understand them, do you? You say so right here. He opened my book and prodded at a line while reading it triumphantly. Why did I choose not to understand? It's a line in a poem, not something I said, I thought brackets but didn't say close brackets you do know what a poem is don't you because i'm beginning to wonder he was elated smiling hard leaning forward on the edge of his chair excited at last to be able to exercise his put down you say it right here you choose not to understand your own poems did my book make you feel a bit stupid i didn't say are you punishing me for that even after this i tried to respond as if he'd asked me an acceptable question At one point a member of the audience intervened to complain about how he was attacking me. When I was signing books afterwards he came up with his copy and said you'll probably write F star 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 off in this but then maybe it'll be worth a lot of money one day. F star 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 off I thought as I signed it. This is an edited extract from Some Answers Without Questions by Lavinia Greenlaw. Faber, £12.99. 
Lavinia Greenlaw is appearing live at the Edinburgh International Book Festival at 4pm on August 25. Details and tickets edbookfest.co.uk forward slash the hyphen festival forward slash what's hyphen on forward slash Lavinia hyphen Greenlaw hyphen honour hyphen the hyphen small hyphen words by Herald Scotland Friday the 6th of August 2021 the Herald Scotland sports section Alan Wynne-Jones calls on Lions players to keep their discipline and decider. Alan Wynne-Jones insists the British and Irish Lions must not allow petty scuffles and poor discipline to further derail hopes of tour success in South Africa. The Springboks set up Saturday evening's crunch winner takes all clash in Cape Town by grinding the Lions into submission during last weekend's fragmented second test. Incessant stoppages aided the world champions after their preparations were affected by an outbreak of coronavirus while preventing the tourists from injecting any pace into a forgettable contest. Lions captain Jones acknowledges the need to match the world champions' formidable physicality but has warned it must not come at the expense of suffocating free-flowing rugby. They always happen but you don't want to entertain them replied the Welshman when asked about handling flashpoints. There's a case for not taking a step back, but also an awareness in keeping the game flowing. You see finals, they can be attritional things, but they can open up as well. I'd like to think we're prepared for both. We were in it up until 60 minutes last weekend, and then discipline probably cost us, so we want to have the ability to do both be ready for both. We need to improve our set piece again. Discipline obviously because the penalty count went against us and try and maintain tempo in the game. If we can do that, we can stay away from anything that might slow us down. Lions coach Warren Gatland has already given his players strict instruction to avoid any niggles ahead of one of the biggest occasions of their careers. Although South Africa's fearsome reputation preceded them as they levelled proceedings at 1-1 thanks to a resounding 27-9 win, the Lions contributed fully to a catalogue of incidents that kept the officials busy. While the Lions' leadership has called for cool heads on match day, the intense nature of training sessions in the build-up to Saturday's eagerly anticipated climax has remained unrelenting. We've had an edge in every week. I think it's definitely here this week. Since selection, we've seen it and we've carried out in a similar vein throughout the week, said 35-year-old Jones. I'd like to think we've prepped pretty well. Our Tuesday session was tasty again, displayed the edge that we've seen on similar occasions previously, and that's the best sort of prep we can have for these games. Friday the 6th of August 2021, the Herald Scotland Sports Section, Tokyo 2020, Laura Kenny and Katie Archibald won gold for GB in Women's Madison. Great Britain's Laura Kenny and Katie Archibald have won the gold medal in the Women's Madison at the Tokyo Olympics. The Scottish cyclist and Kenny 
took home gold at the Women's Madison Final at the Izu Velodrome on the 14th day of the Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games in Japan. It was a fifth career Olympic gold for Kenny, who surpassed Dutch women Leontian Zillard van Morsel to become the most successful female cyclist in Olympic history as she took gold at a third consecutive Games. The British pair looked in control from the off, winning the first three sprints on the track and then further exp- extending their advantage after the Dutch pair of Kirsten Wilde and Amy Peters, reigning world champions, were caught in a crash with a little over 70 laps remaining. This is the first ever running of the Women's Madison, with the event also returning to the men's programme for the first time since 2008. Kenny and Archibald wasted little time asserting their dominance in the race as they beat the Dutch in the first three sprints, taking it in turns as Archibald won the first and Kenny the second. By the end of the race, they had won 10 of the 12 sprints, including the double points for the last lap to finish with 78 points, more than twice the tally of second-placed Denmark on 35. Kenny asked what it felt like to become the first female British Olympian to win a gold medal at three successive Olympic Games, told the BBC. It's unbelievable. I am just so glad. I have never wanted to win a race so badly in my life. It was giving me fears like never before, but we went and did it. Kenny invited to send a message to her son Albie back home in the UK, added, I have never missed him so much in all my life. It's so hard leaving him at home. To have Katie here, it feels like I am racing with my sister. I couldn't have done it without her. Archibald said, I've been dreaming about this. I've never wanted something so much and I've never been so nervous, but we've been clinical in our approach. I'd like to thank our coach, Monica Greenwood. None of this would have happened without Monica. She overhauled our approach to this event. Kenny added, Monica is married to Ben, who is the under-23s coach. We've done this exact plan five times with the under-23s. I've never felt so confident about a plan in my life. We just raced it again. Friday the 6th of August 2021, the Herald Scotland Sports Section. Great Britain won hockey bronze after thrilling victory over India. Great Britain's women won the bronze medal at Oi Hockey Stadium after beating India 4-3 in a thrilling clash at the Tokyo Olympics. Although the Rio 2016 champions relinquished, relinquished their title following an emphatic semi-final loss to Holland on Holland on Wednesday, they dug deep and secured a first successive Games podium finish. The London 2012 bronze medalists had to dig deep, though leading 2-0, then falling behind before winning it in the final quarter with Grace Balsden's penalty corner clincher. Ellie Rea opened the scoring, then Sarah Robertson made it 2-0, only for India to score three times in four minutes during a frantic second quarter, with Gurdjieff Kaur scoring twice and Vandana 
Kataria, also netting. Captain Holly Pern Webb equalised in the third quarter before Britain showed composure to go back in front and close out a fine victory that sparked scenes of wild celebration. After a scoreless first quarter, Britain needed less than a minute of the second quarter to deservedly go ahead. Rare left the Indian defence floundering with a surging run and she was awarded the goal despite her cross being heavily deflected past India's goalkeeper. Ansley then hit the post as Britain continued to impress and they went 2-0 up by following a brilliant turn and shot by Robertson. Goalkeeper Maddie Hinge made a sharp reflex save following a rare India attack but the deficit was then reduced after Kaur struck from a penalty corner before she repeated the feat two minutes later making it 2-2. Remarkably India added a third goal in four minutes through Kataria. It went to a video referral before being allowed to stand and Britain suddenly had a huge fight on their hands trailing 3-2 at half time. Britain needed to regroup after such a demoralising end to the second quarter and they responded impressively establishing a strong platform before Pern Webb hit a powerful shot into the corner of India's net. Two more penalty corners put the reigning Olympic champions under pressure though and Hinge made a fine save as a thrilling encounter continued at stamina sapping pace. Tied 3-3 entering the final quarter. Then Balsden struck. Britain kept her composure and India could find no way back as a bronze medal was secured following an epic encounter. From the Hill Scotland dated Friday 6 August 2021 from the Voices section. Duty calls as UK officials press for the return of office staff. An article by Christy Dorsey, business correspondent. With unmistakable echoes of the wartime spirit, it is our duty, we are being told, to emerge from the safety of our bunkers at home and return to the workplace arena. Well, in England that is. In Scotland, the advice remains to work from home where possible, with no indication as to when that might cease to be the case. It's a concerning situation for those whose livelihoods depend on the passing trade of office workers. With the only certainty right now being that working patterns will not fully revert to what they were prior to Covid. That said, the rallying cry from the UK government is explicit in its intent to restore as much normality as possible. Though short of ordering employees to return to their pre-pandemic workstations, the clear message is that it is incumbent to do so. On Tuesday, Skills Minister Gillian Keegan took to the radio to discuss the obligation upon older workers to pass on their knowledge and skills to younger employees. While conceding that businesses will decide on future working arrangements, she pressed home the point that it is now safe to go back to the office. All of us can still remember all the people we learned from all our career, and that is important for young people as well, she said. 
we have that obligation to pass on our knowledge, our skills, our talents, to nurture people, to mentor people. That is still an important part and there is a limit to how much you can do that on screen. Chancellor Rishi Sunak was singing off the same hymn sheet in an interview with LinkedIn News earlier this week as he recalled the beneficial relationships he developed when starting his career in finance. I doubt I would have had those strong relationships if I was doing my summer internship or my first bit of my career over Teams or Zoom, he said. That's why I think, for young people in particular, being able to physically be in an office is valuable. It's not the first time Mr Sunak has waxed lyrical about the office. In an interview in March, he claimed that staff may quit their jobs if they are forced to work from home in the future. And during the run-up to England's Freedom Day on July 19th, he was quoted as saying that it is really important for young people to be in the workplace, learning directly from others. Cynics have suggested that the Chancellor's fervour is fuelled at least in part by his links to the investment community, where property holdings and rental income account for a significant proportion of financial returns. Perhaps, but there are other equally daunting repercussions of a permanent exodus of workers from city and town centres, as Mr Sunak is certainly aware. One of the biggest concerns is what happens to those shops, restaurants and watering holes that service commuters. In Glasgow, one of the worst affected cities in the UK by the loss of commuters, there are an estimated 30,000 workers who depend for trade on those travelling in and out each day. Permanently restricted footfall puts these businesses in jeopardy, with the risk of further job losses and the continuing downward spiral of the high streets. It is here that governments have been accused by some of failing to lead by example. Asked earlier this week how many civil servants had returned to the Department for Education, Ms Keegan replied, I would probably say 20 to 25% at the moment on any one day. Obviously, different people are coming in on different days. According to reports, one flexible working model under consideration would see civil servants spending just 30% of their time in their offices in Whitehall. Meanwhile, the Scottish Government is said to be working on a plan to follow NHS Scotland by offering its 7,500 staff the option of hybrid working. Unlike Westminster, such a move would be more in keeping with the overall tone of statements coming out of Holyrood, but there would still be knock-on effects. And what of those younger workers whose skills are of such concern to Mr Sunak and Miss Keegan? Well, they are not universally chomping at the bit to get back to their desks. Following the Chancellor's comments earlier this week, some accused him of being regressive and out of touch. Reverting to a culture of presenteeism, or rewarding those willing to make the commute, rather than those best able to do the job, is clearly undesirable. Yet there is no denying that remote working is second best when it comes to networking opportunities collaboration and the soft skills that have become increasingly important in today's employment market. New research out today from digital coaching provider Ezra 
found that the most sought-after skill across the global workplace is communication, followed by emotional intelligence. Both of these qualities are developed and used at their best in face-to-face settings, where humans innately pick up on an array of non-verbal cues that add depth and subtlety to the words being spoken. While some may question whether lockdown has eroded these soft skills, others are betting on it. Professional trainers are introducing a variety of programmes to assist those who fear their powers of face-to-face communication have gone rusty after 16 plus months of interacting entirely online. Remote working has obviously environmental benefits and in many cases is a financial boost to the individuals involved. But it also runs counter to the fact that humans are social creatures. While working from home can improve work-life balance, for some it has also led to feelings of isolation, disconnection and a deterioration in mental health. With blurred boundaries between professional and private life, many report that they are struggling to switch off from work. That said, surveys have repeatedly shown that most employees want to continue working from home, at least part-time making them resistant to bosses who fear that efficiency, productivity and creativity are suffering because staff are not in the office. Reaching an agreement on working arrangements that satisfies both sides will not be possible in every case, but employers that resort to diktat rather than negotiation will find themselves battling against the disgruntled workforce. There are no straightforward answers just as there is no going back to the pre-COVID world. We have proven that with the right technology, there is less need to go to work to get the job done. Yet for companies, employees and the wider economy, much still depends on communal workplaces. This article is by Christy Dorsey. The Herald Business Section, Wednesday the 4th of August 2021. 750 Scottish Internet of Things Jobs Expected by Brian Donnelly Scotland's first accelerator for firms in the Internet of Things IoT sector has been launched with the aim of creating dozens of businesses and hundreds of jobs in the next three years. The Filament STAC accelerator is partly modelled on a Canadian programme that has supported around 650 startups and created over 4,000 jobs, and Tim Ellis, the centre's founder, has been lined up as a consultant to the Scottish project. Filament STAC will build on the IoT foundations already put in place by Census, Scotland's Innovation Centre for Sensing, Imaging and IoT Technologies, and Glasgow-headquartered product design firm Filament. The three-year targets for Filament STAC in Scotland are for the creation of more than 25 IoT companies, supporting around 750 jobs, reporting revenue in the region of £750 million, with cohort companies raising investment in excess of £100 million. Filament STAC, which starts in Sky Park in Glasgow in October, is underpinned by an industry-government partnership which will see Scottish Enterprise support the first phase of growth alongside Filament, Plexus Corp, a global leader in complex design, manufacturing, supply chain and aftermarket services, and Census. 
Cohort companies and the accelerator program will have the option to be based at Skypark. Paul Wilson, Filament and STAC chief executive, said, We believe Scotland has the potential to be a main player in smart connected devices and moving ahead with the accelerator gives us a real chance to gain a leading position in an IoT sector forecast to reach $1.5 trillion over the next few years. This article was written by Brian Donnelly. The Herald Business section. Wednesday the 4th of August 2021 Iron Brewmaker Set for Sales Hike by Brian Donnelly Iron Brewmaker AG Barr has said it expects sales to be up nearly a fifth for the first half of its financial year. The 18% rise in sales to around £134 million comes alongside a recovery in on-the-go consumption and strong at-home sales as well as positive momentum in funking cocktail mix division as people to return to hospitality venues. The Cumbernauld-based drinks giant said it intends to increase brand investment going into the next six months, but it flagged recent UK haulage concerns over deliveries in and out and wider labour pool challenges. On a like-for-like 26-week basis, revenue is expected to be up around 13%, with trading strong across both business units, bar soft drinks and funkin. It said the results have been driven by a combination of brand-led initiatives and market factors, some of which were long-term and structural and others more one-off, resulting in a short-term boost to its operating margin. However, Barr said it would not expect the tailwinds to be replicated in the second half of its financial year, although the 12-month operating margin is still anticipated to be slightly ahead of the prior year. Barr also said that it has been growing volumes and improving its product mix. It said recent new product launches are performing well with positive consumer feedback and encouraging customer listings. Roger White, AG Barr Chief Executive, said, While uncertainty remains, we are confident in delivering our plans across the balance over the year. The full year performance reflects the well-documented pressure on supply chains and rising commodity prices. The energy drink subcategory is outperforming the total drinks market and Bar's focus on Rubicon Raw Energy has had a very positive start and is expected to be accelerated in the second half of the year. During the various lockdown periods, Funkin capitalised on the increase in demand for cocktails at home through both traditional retail and direct-to-consumer channels, becoming the UK's number one ready-to-drink cocktail brand. Our operational resilience has been excellent across the first half of the year. In recent weeks, however, we've seen an increase in challenges associated in part with the COVID-19 pandemic across the UK road haulage fleet impacting customer deliveries and inbound materials. In addition, the risks associated with the wider labour pool and the current COVID-19 pandemic response are areas we continue to monitor closely. We believe the commitment and capability of our workforce and supply base will stand us in good stead in these uncertain times. The firm underlined its July guidance the profit for the current 53-week financial year ending January 30th, 2022 is expected to be slightly ahead of the performance delivered in the 52-week prior to COVID, which saw a profit before tax of £37.4 million. Mr White said we are pleased with the performance of the business in the year so far. AG Bar shares closed down 1p at 565p. This article was written by Brian Donnelly. The Herald Business Section, Friday the 6th of August 2021. Rolls-Royce Returns to Profit in First Half by Brian Donnelly. 
Rolls-Royce returned to profit in the first half of 2021, but said the pandemic hit international aviation industry is taking longer than expected to recover. The engineering giant posted bottom line profits of £393 million for the first six months of the year in a marked improvement from mammoth losses of £5.4 billion a year ago. On an underlying basis, it reported pre-tax profits of £133 million compared with losses of £3.2 billion a year earlier. Shares lifted 3% in early trading and closed nearly double that. Rolls-Royce said international travel will bounce back once border restrictions are lifted but warned that slower recovery will mean that it takes longer to achieve a free cash flow target of £750 million. It said we are confident that when border restrictions are lifted, the recovery of international travel will accelerate. Free cash flow targets are still achievable, but it added that based on current industry forecasts for the pace of recovery in international travel, this is likely to occur beyond the initial expected time frame of 2022. The engineering group Civil Aerospace Arm, its largest division, has suffered as the coronavirus crisis hammered the global aviation industry. It said large engine flying hours were still less than half of pre-pandemic levels in 2019, but 43%. But this is up from the 34% seen in the second half of 2020. The firm said its goal to raise at least £2 billion from selling off parts of the business is progressing well, having announced a deal on Wednesday to offload Norwegian maritime engine maker Bergen to British group Langley Holdings. It added that the sale of its Spanish unit, ITP Aero, is moving forwards. Michael Hewson, chief markets analyst at CMC Markets, said there is no question that Rolls-Royce continues to face significant challenges. Rolls-Royce shares closed up 6.14p or 5.87% at 110.68p. This article was written by Brian Donnelly. From the Herald, Scotland, Monday the 9th of August 2021, from the sports section, an article originally published on the 8th of August. British and Irish Lions ran Springboks close, but unable to make meaningful impression in fierce battle. By John Cardinelli, sports writer. The Springboks won the three test series against the British and Irish Lions on the back of a relentless defensive and aerial kicking performance. For all the Lions talk about pursuing a bolder, more expansive approach, they failed to make a meaningful impression on the South African juggernaut. All three matches were fiercely contested, low-scoring affairs. As expected, defence dominated attack for much of the series, and the team that made the most of its relatively few opportunities emerged victorious. In the first and third tests, a single score was the difference, and on each occasion the losers were made to lament their own missed chances. For South Africa, there were two disallowed tries and the late Andre Pollard miss on a goal which cost them the series opener. The Lions will forever regret their failure to capitalise on a clear try-scoring chance on the right wing in the third test, as well as the decisions taken by the leadership to turn down several kickable penalties in favour of a line-out in the corner. Six tries were scored over the course of the series, with the hosts outscoring the visitors in this department by 4-2. The box obtained more reward for their endeavour, and it was evident that their game plan, however it was perceived by the opposition, neutrals as well as the media, 
was largely effective. The box were far from clinical in their series opener. In the second match, they took their chances after Makazoli Mapimpi collected an inspired Henry Pollard cross kick and Fafty Clerk produced a clever gripper for Lucanio Am to chase. In the decider, it was Chesson Colby who finished after the host launched a counter strike down the right hand flank. South Africa used their defence as a weapon. Players such as Eben Etzebeth and Damien Dialandi were dominant at the gain line, while De Klerk, Am and others routinely rushed the ball carriers in the wider channels in order to kill the attacking momentum. The box bombarded the Lions with aerial kicks and looked to feed off opposition mistakes. This brand of counter-attacking rugby, which brought them success at the 2019 World Cup, earned them a great reward in the shape of a Lions series of the trophy. There were moments when the Lions had the box scrambling, and Finn Russell's performance in the third test showed that the South Africans can be stretched. Then again, the box, who conceded one try of the course of the three 2019 World Cup playoffs, conceded only two tries over a period of 240 minutes. It's also worth reiterating that they were without, they were without the defensive talisman, Dwayne Vermeulen, for the entire series, and that they were without key players, such as Peter Steph de Twat and de Klerk, for the decider. Somehow they managed to take these losses in their stride and go, go implement their strategy to the devastating effect. Credit must go to Springbok coach Jack Snainbrabber and the director of rugby Razi Erasmus for the manner in which they managed the players over the course of the series. While the Lions and many others have criticised the box style of play, the players have continued to believe that it is the best route to success. The conviction of the defensive performance, particularly in the third test, was something to behold. Late in the game, when the Lions were hammering away at the South African tri-line in search of a score that would take them to 5-7 to seven points clear, Nirabra could be heard screaming, Attitude! 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 from the coaching box. As tired as they were, the box held that line as if their lives depended on it. And when the Lions eventually made the mistake, the momentum swung in the host's favour. The results of the series will strengthen the resolve of Nirabra and his charges as they head into the Rugby Championship and as they build towards the 2023 World Cup. They were not as clinical in this Lions series as they were in the 2019 World Cup and this was to be expected given the preparations were severely disrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic. The box will grow stronger in the coming months and, contrary to what has been said in wider rugby circles, they will continue to believe that they have a winning formula. And that article was written by John Cardinelli. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 9th of August 2021, from the sports section, Dundee United defender Charlie Mulgrew warned Rangers will find winning away more difficult with fans back. By Matthew Lindsay, Chief Football Writer. Charlie Mulgrew has predicted Rangers will find it more difficult to record wins away from home in the Cinch Premierships this season, with fans back inside stadiums in large number. 
Former Celtic and Scotland player Mulgrew helped Dundee United to beat the Ibrox Club 1-0 at Tanadice on Saturday. It was the first time the Scottish champions had lost in the league in 16 months and 40 games. The previous defeat had come against Hamilton at home way back in March 4th, 2020. United were roared on by 4,600 of their supporters at the weekend due to the relaxing of COVID-19 social distancing restrictions and centre-half Mongrew praised the crowd for their vocal backing. The 35-year-old felt the Tayside outfit met their Glasgow rivals who take on Malmo and Govan in second leg of the Champions League third qualifying round doubleheader tomorrow evening at the perfect time. However, he also argued the intimidating atmosphere the United fans created piled the pressure on the visitors and anticipates Stephen Gerrard's sides will not find victories on the road as he said to come by in the coming months as they did last term. Listen, they, Rangers, have been brilliant, he said, but it was about what we did and how we went up against them. It's not easy in between the Champions League games when you need to qualify. That's your cup final. We really stuck to our game plan and got in their faces. I told the lads I know what it's like in between Champions League games and qualifiers. These games are difficult. You don't want people in your face. You want an easy day. I knew it was important we didn't give them that. From the first minute we were right on top of them and we managed to get the result. They are a great side and they will respond to that. But we are just happy we could get a result. We fought all over the pitch. I could go right through the squad. Genuinely, it was a proper 11 out there and the lads that came on were brilliant. Mulgrew continued, The fans were brilliant for us too. We needed them to get behind us. We knew our fans would get behind us if we started well and give them something to cheer for. We did that and it just came together nicely. They stuck with us. We have to make sure that is the way forward. We are all in it together. We are all pushing for the same thing. There is no doubt about it. It makes away games a bit more difficult. When your opponents give their fans something to cheer, maybe to get a couple of corners early, it sways the mindset to, we are under pressure here. Whereas, in a quiet stadium, it's just like a training game and the pressure is off a wee bit. I'm sure in the first 15-20 to 20 minutes, Rangers fans felt, we've not started well. Oh no, no, no. A few corners, and that's what the fans do. Football's nothing without fans, so we're thankful to have them. Rangers are a great side and they will bounce back, but we played well and got the three points, and now it's on to our next game. That's as simple as it is. And that piece was by Matthew Lindsay. The Herald, Tuesday the 10th of August 2021. News. More than 200 beavers officially killed in Scotland since they became protected species. This article is by Martin Williams. More than 200 beavers have been culled in Scotland since they became a protected species. New data shows that since beavers became a European protected species on May 1st, 2019, some 202 have been subject of licensed killing. Some 115 were culled in 2020, on top of 87 that were shot between May 1st 
and the end of 2019. Highlands-based Trees for Life says Nature Scott, the Government Conservation Agency, is breaking the law by issuing lethal control licences without exploring all other options. It comes, as Nature Scott said, beaver numbers have doubled in the past three years. A survey by Nature Scott, the Government Conservation Agency, estimates 1,000 beavers now live in the wild, reaching rivers north of Dundee in the east, westwards to Crean Larch, north of Loch Lomond and south to Stirling on the River Forth. Describing it as a rapid expansion, they believe the expansion is likely to reach into Loch Lomond in the future. The largest of its kind so far in the UK, the survey confirmed the beavers had established 251 territories, more than double, 120%, those found three years ago. One northerly population in Glen Isla, Angus, is close to the southern border of the Cairngorms National Park. Using canoes and field surveys, researchers found 13,204 confirmed signs of activity, including burrows, dams, lodges, scent mounds, canal digging and tree feeding. There were signs of beavers near Drimmon next to Loch Lomond, but no evidence they had settled there. Nature Scott said the findings were a conservation success, but the agency came under heavy criticism afterwards over the numbers that were killed last year under licence to protect farms, woodland and infrastructure. Another 31 were trapped and relocated to official reintroduction sites in England and Wales. That is on top of the 83 beaver dams that were removed with 15 animals live trapped and translocated between May and December of 2019. Beavers have been called ecosystem engineers for their incredible construction skills and are seen as a potential solution to flooding and wetland loss. Trees for Life is seeking to curb the legal deaths through a judicial review in court. Its legal action argues that ministers and the Nature Agency are failing to make the killing of beavers as a genuine last resort when the species needs to be managed. The rewilding charity accused Nature Scott of suppressing this data when the charity launched legal action over its beaver culling policy last year. Trees for Life is waiting for a judge to rule on whether Nature Scott's policy on lethal control is lawful after a two-day judicial review hearing in June. Alan MacDonald, the charity's conservation director, said, Nature Scott has sat on this grim tally since December, refusing to confirm it until today's bid to hide the figures behind a welcome turn of events for the overall beaver population. This is such a waste of life and opportunity when nature is in crisis. Both the National Farmers Union and the landowners' lobby group Scottish Land and Estates, SLE, raised £100,000 to make official legal representations and join forces with Scottish ministers in Nature Scott to fight the beaver cull challenge. The NFU argued that if Trees for Life succeed, it will set a precedent over future species management and could limit options to avoid serious agricultural damage. Robbie Kernahan, Nature Scott's Head of Sustainable Growth, said beavers are nature's supreme water engineers, but we know that they may cause severe problems in some areas, 
particularly for crops on prime agricultural land and for important infrastructure like road drains or railway lines. This article is by Martin Williams. Recorded from the Herald on the 10th of August 2021. From the sports section, Celtic vs Hearts. Reason Jambos won't have fans inside Parkhead despite full capacity green light. By Mark Hendry. Hearts have confirmed they will have no fans inside Celtic Park this weekend, despite Glasgow City Council confirming the Hoops can host a full house. The Jambos released a statement explaining why tickets would not go on sale for their travelling support. Celtic expects 60,000 fans inside the ground on Thursday evening for their second leg tie against Jablonic and Europa League qualifying, but they will not allow any Jambos inside Parkhead. And Hearts revealed their decision taken by their Premier Sports Cup opponents is to ensure there is still space for a red zone to keep both players and punters safe. A short statement read, Celtic have confirmed that no tickets will be issued to away supporters this Sunday. This is due to the need for sections of the stadium to remain sterile in order to maintain a red zone, resulting in affected home supporters being moved to other areas of the ground. Celtic will be desperate to exact revenge on their foes after they suffered an opening day Premiership defeat at Tynecastle. That article was by Mark Hendry. The Herald Business Section Tuesday the 10th of August 2021 Audi Scotland Hiring 500 Workers by Brian Donnelly Audi is looking to hire over 490 workers in Scotland between now and Christmas. The UK's fifth largest supermarket is looking for people of all levels of experience to fill roles at its stores and distribution centres across the country. This includes apprenticeships and part-time positions such as store assistants and warehouse logistic assistants and store managers. Stores in Scotland where Audi is looking to hire include Aberdeen, Ayr and Bathgate. The recruitment push forms part of Audi's nationwide expansion drive in recent years, with the supermarket currently looking to fill thousands of roles across the UK before the end of the year. Kelly Stokes, recruitment director at Audi UK, said, As we continue to grow, we're looking for some more ambitious and hard-working individuals to join our team at stores and distribution centres across Scotland. There's something here for everyone, from new starters looking to take their first steps on their career ladder to more experienced team managers seeking a new challenge. Our amazing colleagues are central to everything we do at Audi and remain one of the key factors in our success. We're looking forward to welcoming our new recruits to the team. This article was written by Brian Donnelly. The Herald Business Section, Tuesday the 10th of August 2021. Lending up over 50% at Scottish Private Bank by Brian Donnelly. Hamden & Co has reported a strong first half with year-on-year double-digit percentage increases in income, deposits and lending. The Edinburgh-based private bank said in the six months to June 30, 2021, income was up by £1.2 million or 24% against the first half of the previous year to £6 million. Deposits rose by £180 million or 42% to £603 million and lending grew by £133 million or 53% to £381 million. The bank said performance follows strong growth in 2020 and has been achieved against a backdrop of historically low interest rates and wider changes in the UK private banking sector. Hampton & Co's growth demonstrates particular interest from individuals and businesses who are looking for more personalised banking relationship, it said. 
Graham Hartop, Hamden & Co. Chief Executive, said, We have continued to experience strong demand for our accessible and flexible approach to banking, particularly during lockdown when clients valued having a banker they can call on. With our focus exclusively on banking, we have also been able to grow and strengthen our relationships with other advisors. The addition last year of our new retirement mortgage service has proved very popular with advisors and the clients as they seek effective solutions to managing finances in later life. This has been reflected in our performance in the first half. In April this year, the bank launched the self-build mortgages for clients who are acquiring land and building a new residential home or who are significantly refurbishing an existing home. This article was written by Brian Donnelly. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.